Hello, and welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors go beyond the headlines to explore the health policy news of the week. I'm Kathleen Haddad. And I'm Ellen Bayer. Today, we're talking about Medicaid, the federal state program that provides health coverage to 85 million low-income Americans. Last week, North Carolina became the 40th state to expand Medicaid. As of April 1, a new process has started to end the pandemic policy of keeping people continuously enrolled in the program. In a longer-term trend, CMS will be transitioning a major initiative aimed at improving care coordination for Medicare, Medicaid dual eligibles to a new model. To help us unpack these issues, we're excited to welcome a Medicaid expert to Health Affairs this week. Melanie Bella is Head of Partnerships and Policy at CityBlock Health, a primary care company serving Medicaid, and is Chair of MACPAC, the nonpartisan commission that advises Congress on Medicaid policy. Melanie has served as Medicaid Director for the state of Indiana, and she headed the CMS Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office during the Obama administration. Melanie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. There's nothing I would rather talk about than Medicaid and dual, so I can't thank you enough for this opportunity. So last week we learned that North Carolina will become the 40th state to expand Medicaid. And it's estimated that North Carolina's Medicaid expansion will provide health coverage to about 600,000 low-income North Carolina residents. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has said that he'll also use federal Medicaid funds to improve the state's mental health and crisis services and to leverage uh, data and technology to improve access to care and health outcomes. So, Melanie, you've been a state Medicaid director. What are some of the key factors and evidence that state policymakers think about when they're making decisions about expanding Medicaid? Well, it's a, first of all, it's a fantastic time to be in North Carolina and really uh, congratulate the governor for his persistence and the legislature for working in a very bipartisan manner on, a, on an issue that's been really sticky, as we've seen in, in the fact that there are still 10 states that aren't expanding Medicaid, at least not yet. Um, I, you know, I think in the sitting in the Medicaid director's seat, the Medicaid directors are not thinking about red or blue. Um, they're thinking about, I have a program to run, and, and generally the costs are increasing, and I've now had kind of explosive roles with the pandemic and the continuous coverage requirements and looking for opportunities to uh, be able to continue coverage in a, in a cost-sustainable way. And so the North Carolina is taking advantage of this opportunity at a fantastic time because they can align it with the Medicaid redeterminations. You know, we expect a lot of folks who uh, in the non-expansion states would lose Medicaid coverage, and North Carolina is positioned now to be able to continue coverage for those folks through the expansion and also benefit from federal government additional financing. So now not only are the states getting 90% match, but states that are expanding today, like North Carolina, will get an additional 5%. And that's for their entire population. It's not just for the expansion population. So it is, uh, it is, a, it is a good day in North Carolina. Um, and hopefully uh, the, the 10 states that have not yet taken those steps will be able to make their way there with their legislatures. I mean, that's obviously that the, um, an important factor as well. You mentioned the 10 states that have not yet expanded Medicaid. And uh, so short of expansion, what are some other options that the federal government might consider to help increase health coverage if these states do not expand uh, to help increase coverage for low-income people in those states? 
Yes, a, a really exciting one, um, albeit just for a slice of the population, is the ability for states to expand coverage for pregnant individuals for 12 months. Um, and you do see some non-expansion states, um, uh, you know, take either expressing interest or trying to go down that path. So that's a really important, as you know, um, you've talked about before, maternal morbidity in Medicaid is, is just... Um, it's ab abhorrent. And so anything we can do to improve maternal health, and this is an important step that all states can do short of expanding for their whole population. In addition, I think, um, you know, states can use what people are, are finally referring to as the old school tools, which are the 1115 waivers predominantly. I mean, Georgia has, has recently done that. They, they have a Pathways to Coverage program that will begin in July. It attaches work requirements um, to conditions of, of folks who get expanded coverage through that. So there are still those mechanisms. They don't come with the same financial incentives, though. And so, again, it is, it is I think, everyone's hope that the other states would, would take the bigger expansion path. But there are still other, other important paths, particularly for pregnant individuals at this point in time. So let's move on now to some other big Medicaid news. We're recording this episode on April 6th, 2023. And beginning earlier this week, April 1st, uh, the pandemic policy that allowed states to get an increase in federal Medicaid matching funds in exchange for keeping people enrolled in the program is being phased out in a process that's being referred to as unwinding. And as a result, millions of Americans are expected to lose Medicaid coverage. So Melanie, what can people who currently have Medicaid expect over the next few weeks and what should they, what could or should they be doing to prepare? Well, it's a scary time. I mean, it's a scary time for people and it's a really difficult time for the Medicaid agencies um, because they're, they're trying to manage um, restarting a very complicated program. Uh, I think what fo the most important thing people can do is make sure their contact information is updated. There are going to be notification and information sent to folks that they're going to need to renew. And I think what's, what's the most worrisome piece is that there will be people who lose coverage for procedural reasons, which means they're still eligible, but for some reason they weren't able to provide the documentation back. And think about the number of people who, whose lodging, whose, whose housing situation changed during COVID. Um, there's, it is expected that a large number of people who lose coverage are losing that for these procedural reasons. And so for, step one is to make sure your, your contact information is updated. And the health plans have an important role to play in that as well. And providers contribute, can contribute to that effort too. But I think that's the most important because preventing people who are losing for procedural reasons is really important. I would say the second is just having an understanding, and, and this is hard for people who aren't familiar with this government bureaucracy and jargon, but understanding kind of there is a, the, each plan does have a, a, a plan for how they plan to sequence this, when they plan to start, how long they plan to do it, who's going first. And so to the extent that people in those states have some visibility into that, which they can get through community-based organizations and others, that's also going to be helpful because then you have an idea of when, when, when it might be your time. Everybody's not going at once, obviously, but all states aren't doing it the same way. Melanie, one group that is especially vulnerable, perhaps, to the unwinding are the 12 million Americans who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. Are there any special steps being taken to uh, help these folks maintain their care? Maybe they're going later in the process, perhaps? Yeah, it's a really important question. I, I think particularly for that population, they're on average less likely to lose uh, 
eligibility for non-procedural reasons. And so making sure that the materials are accessible, because the duels as a, as a uh, sort of general matter have also been a harder to reach population, just regardless of the pandemic or any of this. And so th there are uh, you know, non-traditional channels that are really important for engaging these populations. That includes uh, stakeholder organizations, community-based organizations, to some degree, the managed care plans that hopefully have some, you know, responsibility for coordinating their care, but also like the the materials. It's even more important for this population that the materials are accessible and they're understandable and they're language literate and all of those things. Some states, I believe, are planning to phase by complexity of their populations. And so presumably that means the duels go later in the process, which again will also help with word of mouth and hoping that people understand what's coming. So, you know, you mentioned two magic phrases, one being Medicare Advantage and one being, um, we're talking about the dual eligibles. So CMS is winding down also the uh, financial alignment initiative or the demonstration programs that they operated in partnership with states, maybe what I think about 10 states. Why are they being phased out? Particularly, I my impression was that the uh, Medicare, Medicaid plans, a specific type, was um, offering a very high level of integration. What's happening with this phase out and why is, why is it happening? Well, these are um, demonstrations that are authorized under the Innovation Center. And the Innovation Center has some pretty specific tests that have to be met in order to allow them to sort of leave demonstration status. And I you know, I'm not at the agency anymore, but I, you know, kind of bird's eye view seems to be that there's been a lot of uh, enrollment growth in dual eligible special needs plans and perhaps an opportunity to take some of the further reaching integration elements from the demonstrations and try to put those into the dual eligible plans because those plans are permanent um, and people understand them and they know about them. I think for a couple, you know, some of the states that are participating in the demos don't feel like that gives them enough integration, right? They don't, they, they would rather be moving on to something that is more integrated than what they have today. And so I do think there's opportunity for CMS and the states to continue to talk about it. Mostly, I think that CMS is, is committed to trying to take pieces from the demonstration and put that into an existing platform that's permanent, recognizing that there are some things that they won't be able to transfer over. And that's an area they'll need to continue to work on with those states. Can you be specific about kind of what were some of the major successes from the demonstration? What were some of the biggest challenges? What, what do you think were some of the, you know, the most important lessons learned and best practices that should be carried forward in this transition? Well, the biggest thing that you always hear is just the misaligned incentives between Medicaid and Medicare. And it's particularly from a state perspective that if, if a state Medicaid program invests in this population and then those savings accrue on the Medicare side, for example, in reduced hospitalization, or better pharmacy use, you know, that's really difficult for states to justify doing that. So what the demonstrations did was, was allow the state and the federal government to share in any savings that resulted. And that's a big motivator for states to be able to invest resources in this. Um, I think the other thing, there were some important beneficiary protections. There were expectations around beneficiary advisory groups that were actually meaningful, not just rubber stamping, and around some grievances and appeals and around marketing. This is, in some counties in the country, duels have over 100 choices 
of plans that are all trying to like compete for their attention and, you know, sort of create sensational benefit packages. And it's really hard for them to sort of make their way through that maze of just like mass chaos, honestly. And so anything that can be done to sort of simplify the message. And in this case, the, the beneficiaries, the enrollees had one, one enrollment card, right? If they're not in these programs, they have three. And then they had one network and they had one grievances and appeals. It's pretty, sounds simple um, because that's the way it should be for them, right? There should be one of these things. And instead there, there's not. And so I think making sure that when you transition into the DSNP, there's sort of that notion of one, even though it's still going to be now a Medicare program and a Medicaid program is going to be important. Um, I'd say they're also really important lessons. The states had very different um, experiences with regard to participation. So Ohio had the strongest participation rate by far. Um, other states had really high opt-out rates. And some of that was driven by providers who in some states literally sort of funded campaigns to tell people not to participate in these programs. And some of it, I think, is just we do a really poor job of communicating with people about what this is. Focus group after focus groups tells us that the, the word integration does not resonate with people. The word coordination typically does not resonate. What they want to know is, can I still see my providers? What extra benefits am I going to get? And are you messing with my drug copays? So Melanie, you mentioned the term DSNP, dual eligible special needs plans. But there has been concern that there are a lot of lookalike plans. Will DSNPs actually be able to coordinate all the care that uh, is needed for duals? It's a complicated question. Uh, there, are, there are three different kinds of DSNPs. Uh, the majority of DSNPs do are, are what's called coordination-only DSNPs. So they don't have a relationship with a Medicaid agency for Medicaid behavioral health or long-term care services. I think there is a real need to move more DSNPs up the integration chain and have them be actually responsible for behavioral health and long-term care. That's where the, the promise is. Health plans, even when they have the Medicaid and Medicare responsibility, they're not organized around duals internally. And so we need to see movement to push plans to to think about a dual eligible at, at, you know, as one line of business instead of their separate ones. Congress has done a nice job of every few years raising the bar for it, expectations of integration between Medicaid agencies and the DSNPs. And I think there's room to keep raising that bar. And there's, there's also room at CMS to um, sort of tighten some of those requirements around DSNPs. And honestly, there's real opportunity for states. They have a lot of levers that they can be using in their requirements of the DSNPs that want to operate in their states. And you're seeing states increasingly sort of dial up those levers and other states see that and then they can adopt that themselves. And so I do think it's going to take continued pressure and scrutiny, honestly, from Congress, from CMS and from states. And with that, we can continue to, to I think, have more positive outcomes. Melanie, thank you for joining us. I think we'll have to leave it there today. You gave us a lot of good information and insight. A reminder to our listeners to take a look at our Forefront series on integrating care for dual eligibles. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Ellen. 